Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? <laughs> it's the Irish Times second captain's football podcast. Martin O'Neill called it a stroke of genius. Aidan McGeady said it was about time. His late goal means three points with the Republic of Ireland from Georgia. Kenan Murph. And that means our destiny is in our own hands in this group. Mm. Well, it, it was... Uh, well, continues still, to be in yeah, our own hands. Yeah, it's still in our own hands. It is. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, well, I mean, it, it's just a case of sealing the deal now. You know, can we just push on for the final leg? Well, seven legs of uh, of this group it was one of the great celebrations. I thought of a goal too. Not so much by Aidan McGeady himself, although he was very happy. Yeah. It seemed like the fans were happy you were there, and the, certainly the management team were. But Seamus Coleman in particular got. It was a Roy Keane-style angry celebration. Oh, yeah. Seamus Coleman's um, <clears throat> repeated uh, pushing of uh, McGeady. I don't know what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah, McGeady. You're the best in the world. How many times have I told you that? I don't know exactly what he was saying. I think I've seen him do that before with Everton um, with Everton goals, uh, kind of celebrating that in that slightly angry-looking way. Um, but, yeah, it was... Um, it was quite clear what the source of his anger was this time, though. If you, if you look at it again, maybe you can have a look at it straight after we finish recording here. Yeah. And if people want to just get the celebration in front of them right now, we can we can pause for a moment. You can get that up and you can look at what happens here. I noticed it after a few viewings. Last, I, I had to watch the goal quite a few times to understand what had happened. That's how fast McGeady's feet moved. Mm. But in watching the goal a few times, I ended up watching the celebration quite a lot. And I worked out that Coleman was a little slow. To, Coleman played the initial ball in, was a little slow to get to the group. They were, they, they were all in sort of a huddle. It was almost like a team huddle at the start. Sometimes you see these vines of players who fail to get into team huddles. This happens yeah. quite regularly. It happened to poor old Seamus Coleman. So he was after, on, on the outside. Oh yeah, he was trying to get in, and by the time he got in, there was no huddle. It right. was just really him and him and Seamus Coleman. He was really annoyed. Yeah. So he started pushing Coleman. I'd say Coleman is probably an alpha male in that group at this stage. He's the best footballer, probably. Yeah. Probably achieving the most at the moment in his career. So mm. he felt the right to 
get annoyed by not being part of the group and start shoving around little Aidan McGeady. After I gave you a ball like that, how could you not score? Um, <laughs> like Hector Enrique uh, with Maradona at that time. I think that was his, that was his that was his gag in the dressing room afterwards. Oh, really? uh, with a pass like the one I gave him, how could he fail? I'd say he dined out. I'd say there was some after dinner speaking doing on the bat on the pace was. That over in Argentina. Was it was it the greatest ever goal scored by an Irish player? Mm. I mean, you don't I, I, we score do, a lot of dribbly goals. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be the most skillful goal ever. I mean, we there have been a few screamers. You know, didn't Mark Kennedy get a brilliant goal against Yugoslavia? Yugoslavia, yeah, that was a great that was a great goal. But I mean, real skill. What about uh, Damien Duff against Canada? Two thousand and three. That was like a sixty-yard run, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Another player mean? who never scored enough goals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know. I, I think it might be very close. I mean, we were talking about obviously fantasy football when we had uh, David Bedil on the show, and remember they used to do like an Ensley League goal of the month <laughs> tournament mm. uh, and it was like just like two terrible goals and then one miss basically the FAI end of year goal of the year tournament that's what that is effectively mm. it's, it's usually headers three he- two headers and one scuffed finish from Robbie Keane we do have a hot favourite I think for 2014 well already his first goal I actually thought his first goal in fairness to the goal of the year that Ireland usually score there's Often one of around that level. There's one pretty yeah, good one that yeah. just stands out be, above, above the headers. Yeah. That first one that would have been the goal of the year. Yeah. That was dead certain <laughs> up until the second one. In the really, yeah. It was a nice goal though. I mean, just the way McCarthy kind of delayed the pass for an instant, kind of let it let it run onto his left foot and played it in. Um, it was a lovely piece of play by him, and then a great finish by McGeady. You know, just no. Uh, you know, he he only had it really a second to. It was the only thing that he could have done, and he just executed it brilliantly. If McGeady can get his head on the end of an Irish corner or something, he can actually do have the full one, two, three <laughs> of the three. FBI goal of the year tournament. <laughs> Dion Fanning was in Tbilisi and will join us today. Miguel Delaney is going to be in studio. Let's first of all get stuck into Ken Early's report on sport. And there really is only one place to start, uh, Owen, um, after the weekend that was. Um, Croke Park, Tbilisi. Mm, the Table Restaurant in Portobello <laughs> is where we're going to go. Right. Because uh, we've obviously had... Um, now, this is... You know the way Netflix, when they released House of Cards, the whole thing was all at the same time. So you could gorge on the uh, sure. the episodes. You know, they all 13 released at the same time. You can just uh, binge as many as you like. Um, uh, Independent.e taking a different approach to John Delaney movie parsing it out uh, in small doses so nobody overdoses <laughs> maybe maybe there is a yeah. risk of overdose when you've got material this potent um, and so we've only had two episodes so far I mean I was hoping to be able to to, to speak about the whole thing mm. you know but instead we just we've only been given a glimpse mm-hmm. so far and I suppose there is always a fascination with that which is hidden Mm. You know what? What might be next? Given what we've seen, there is a chance the third part could be worse than the first two parts. I mean, the, that's what keeps the coaster risk coming back. The you know, dynamite that exploded <laughs> off my screen um, in the first two uh, episodes. Um, I mean, it goes back. It goes back a long way. We're going to hear a little bit of it now. Uh, to before, I mean, John Delaney. Now he, he does seem like an unreachable figure, and in some ways, an unattainable figure. You know, you know the, the shining city on the hill. He's kind of the shining football administrator on the hill. And, uh, you know, this, I think this documentary, the great thing about it is it peels it back. You know, like an onion, multi-layered, peels back layers. And it goes back in time uh, to the time 
before he was uh, a sports administrator. And into the land came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He was not the light that God has given to the world, but came that he might bear witness to that light. This man was known as John the Baptist. I ran a bakery for a couple of years. Got involved in a logistics company in Waterford. I was partly involved in a furniture shop, not loan from my dad as well. We leased a pub in, in Tralee. So I had a vending distribution company, the coffee distribution. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, lot of early business success. It's it's a different thing. story to the to the original John the Baptist, who, as far as I know, was a simple goat herd. Uh, no business expertise of any kind. No coffee distribution company. He was a voice screaming in the wilderness, as far as I remember, and an, an anti-social man. You know, he didn't, um, it, it wasn't as though he <clears throat> was able to uh, link up with, you know, such a range of businesses or negotiate with tax and tax sheriffs, health inspectors, as, as John Delaney uh, details in this movie. John the Baptist is what the movie is called. I wondered why. Why the Baptist? And it turns out, uh, and this was in the in the profile piece that appeared in Life magazine, um, and the quote was... I've got it here again. Oh, yeah. He is the John the Baptist of the FAI, writes Barry Egan. He partly cleansed it of its sins <laughs> and made it a much, much better institution. I think if John the Baptist was any kind of a Baptist, he would have completely cleansed sins. Well, he... You know, like, that's, that's, what, he, that's what he was there for. You know, I mean, partly isn't really doing the job, you know? Yeah. I mean, Nearly never milked the cow, Ken. But look, you know, surely... You're, you're trying to tell me half a loaf is the same as no bread. You know, I think John, if John Delaney has partly cleansed the FBI of its sins, then a lot done more to do. It's on the it's on the right path. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's not baptising then, you know? He's just washing. It's not a question. John the washer. Yeah, you're either cleansing sins or you're not here, Ken. Okay. This is, this is a fast-paced... Because uh, Delaney is a dynamic figure, he's uh, he's an important man. He makes an apology for that. Uh, he he moves in some pretty elevated circles. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, when he comes up, then give me a show. Well, yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too. Don't forget that. I mean, because it, it's the kind of thing maybe that you could. But you know, at the same time, you know, you would never want to think that there's John Delaney. You know, you sort of you're you're looking out of your little um, your little Irish eyes. Peering up at the sky at, the, at this gleaming corporate jet, uh, which is uh, you know cutting a line across the, the sky, John Delaney sitting up there in, in business class. Um, he, he's not like that because he's he is a man of laughter. Uh, he does try to bring laughter wherever he goes. I was telling one of a trap we were down in Tremor and there was no media presence. About four or five hundred there, club of the year. We're all in the room having to crack. And we had a thing that I'd tell a few stories at a mic, but the trap would come up and speak, and so I'm up telling a few stories. And I said, now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to the Irish international manager, Giovanni Trapattoni. And he takes the mic and he says, excuse me, excuse me, my English is not so good, not so good. And I did a mic and said, wasn't self-combatant when you were doing the wages? <laughs> Sorry, Barry Egan got an interview with Giovanni Trapattoni for the... <laughs> no, that was a John that was John Delaney's impersonation. Trap. Oh, sorry, sorry. I just when it's just the audio, you kind of tend to forget. But you yeah. rolled into that beautiful mm. North Italian accent. So I mean, there are laughs, there are Laurel laughs, but there's also moments of real pathos because you talk, you're talking here about a man who who isn't just uh, a sports administrator, and you know, probably probably 
one of the best ones around. Uh, but you're also talking about a real human man with a with a human heart. So I do think that this movie, you know, manages it succeeds in showing us some of those personal moments, some of those dark times that John Delaney has had to has had to uh, work through. You know that it's it's almost like the sad clown sometimes. You know because when you're in when you've got a public position like that, you've got to keep up that face of the world even even at times of, of personal difficulty. And here he is talking about um, something which happened around the time of the uh, Germany match. Ireland, of course, lost 6-1 at home. A very disappointing result. Um, uh, and let John Delaney take it from here. Later at night, I have to go to Cork, carry a line for, for their dinner dance, and get up on Sunday morning and get on the plane to go to the Faroe Islands. So in the midst of all that, and there was a lot of panic, the media had gone berserk, Everybody's looking for you. We lost the game 6-1. But Saturday was work. You had to be at the commemorative match, I give my word. Had to be in Carrigaline that night. Get up early Sunday morning. Straight to a plane after the Pharaohs, you know. And the only laugh I got to people saying to me, you know, how you feel? And I said, actually, it was my birthday the night we were playing the Pharaohs, you know. And I, and I was said, my one-liner was, well, I don't know whether I'm going to have a good birthday or an awful birthday. Did you, you know? have a good day? A birthday or an awful birthday? <laughs> when the game was over, yeah. It was his birthday. His 45th birthday. Well, it's a big one, you know. And he had to, he had to work. To, can you believe that? <laughs> can you believe that? I mean, to, to have to, to be put in such a position as having to work all the way through your 45th birthday is unconscionable. And, uh, and difficult. I actually was in Torshaven. Torshaven, not a very big town. Uh, Faroe Islands, a uh, small place. There's not that many places to go if you want to celebrate a birthday. Uh, I saw a little bit of, of um, I don't know if it was a birthday dinner uh, for John Delaney. I mean, he does say there that uh, he, they they had a night out or they had a night after the match was over. Well, before the match was on, uh, the day before the match, I remember seeing um, uh, John Delaney and a few of the FAI lads having dinner. Um, I, I remember very clearly because one of them was standing up and singing and you could hear it through the open window. Is this the way to Amarillo? <laughs> which is which is great. It looked like uh, it was a good atmosphere. Everyone everyone was having a good time, and, and I'm you know. But I know now that really he it was it was difficult. I suppose. I mean, it was his birthday. I, I don't begrudge the fact that they were able to to knock a, eke a little bit of happiness out, even on such a dark day. I think day. the big question that everyone's trying to answer if people care enough about this um, John Delaney weekend. Mm. Uh, certainly John Laney Day yesterday, Sunday Independent in Life magazine. The interview went along, the the profile, I guess, went along to go with this uh, this movie. There was a separate piece then in both the Sunday Independent and, I think, other newspapers about the new love of his life. Uh, John Delaney has found love there. Why, why, why all this? I mean, what is John Delaney looking for from this movie? I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know if you see. I don't know if other. I don't know if other CEOs of other associations look for the same kind of publicity. I don't remember seeing, you know, Greg Dyke or uh, sort of anything. He didn't like, gift a stadium to the sports fans of the country, though. Well, that is he some, didn't hand a sports stadium to the fans of the nation single-handedly. That is something that was uh, that appeared there. Uh, I don't have the quote in front of me, but it was something along the lines of given, you know, he gave this stadium. I mean, I'm not sure um, 
I'm not sure that's exactly what happened. Uh, <laughs> the FBI, the Irish Review. Yeah, in 2010, John effectively gave the sports fans of Ireland the greatest stadium ever built in this country, the state of the art of Viva. At the official launch of the stadium by then Taoiseach Brian Cowan. Oh, sorry, that goes on. But yeah, that's the, the first part of that sentence is probably the most relevant. Part. Yeah, I mean, at that stage, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if, if, I suppose maybe like Al Gore took the initiative in the creation of the internet. Maybe I mean John Delaney was involved, I suppose. In the I mean, he, he mentions in the movie the, some of the principles that he learned in his early business career. You know, you, you apply them, you apply them in other areas, and uh, yeah. Well, but I suppose when people put themselves out there like this, they want to be liked by more people. Ideally, they want people to read and watch these things and think better of them. But in the sen- in, just in terms of his job as CEO of the FAI, the, for example, that. That stadium stuff. Hmm. Uh, and Eamon Dunphy talking in the piece about how the finance of this deal is right. He's managed to, to or he will manage to get that side right. It will work, all these kind of things. I mean, that's been written about quite a lot, that the FAI have struggled with the financial side of, of the stadium, and the stadium has been by no means a runaway success for them. So I'm just wondering where this places him in terms of how we're supposed to think about the job that he's doing as CEO of the FAI, or is it just to be dealt with... At, on the basis or if of the FBI, being, uh, if, if the FBI has anything to do with it at all, if this is, if John Delaney is doing this for, you know, for a, a, a reason just to do with his own public image, I I, I can't understand it. It's I, I really I'm I'm really struggling here, Karen. I can't really shed much light on it. I mean, there there. I mean, it, claims are made about this interview that you know it sees more unguarded, and this is, again, it's not finished. I mean, the Life magazine piece does seem to contain a lot of the quotes from the. Maybe because when you're watching it, you, you recognise a lot of the quotes that you've read in this in this piece. So I don't know if there's going to be more explosive stuff. You know, I mean, Dennis O'Brien was there explaining how he made the decision to start funding the team. He said he thought we we lost four 0 to Norway or Cyprus or somebody, and he uh, decided to uh, get in touch and ask if the association wanted a sponsor. Um, John Delaney is, is supposed to speak unguardedly, but I notice when he speaks unguardedly, it seems to be about the. I mean. Uh, how was the FAI before you arrived, uh, Barry Ignace? I mean, he says, very badly run. He says, unguardedly. And you think, well, it's, it's quite easy to be unguarded like that when you're criticising other people. I mean, you're criticising the people who are running it when you arrived. You know, you're not, sort of, you're not pointing the finger at yourself, you know, or, or admitting, well, you know. Tough as this may be for <laughs> me to say. Uh, the organisation wasn't half as good as it is now that I'm here. <laughs> There's also a bit where it, where it mentions um, uh, it, very quickly in a voiceover by by Barry Egan and showing a couple of still photographs. It says Ireland was in the wilderness for a few years with uh, Steve Staunton before that Brian Kerr. N- never mentioning at any point that it was John Delaney who hired Steve Staunton. That was his idea. He was the man who brought him in and said, "This is a you know this is a world class management team," but. Now that doesn't that doesn't seem to be part of this picture that's now being presented. I mean, when we talk about the Aviva Stadium being uh, the best stadium ever built in Ireland, which I think very few people would agree with, but I guess it's a matter of opinion. But I don't think many people are going to agree that the Aviva Stadium is the best stadium in you know in this country or or in the city. Um, it, the thing that you notice about the Aviva Stadium now is how few people are turning up to the matches. And that's also something which has happened on John Delaney's watch. I mean, when he took over, the FAI might, may have been, as he says, badly run. Uh, but one way or the other, there seems to be much more uh, interest in the national team. Uh, it seems to be a much bigger part of Irish life then than it now is. I'm sure John Delaney could point to 
you know, I'm sure that when, when Germany come and play here, when Scotland come and play here, we're going to have big crowds for those matches. But, you know, we had a situation last week where there was people having paid for tickets who didn't turn up. People who paid for season tickets aren't there. <laughs> when does that ever happen? You know, it's, it's amazing. It's like, uh, you know, it's only Oman or whatever is what people would say. But at the same time, you know, they're... The, Whatever that, that sort of culture was of, of going to watch these this team, that seems to have been something that's gone by the wayside. And I wonder if the rest of this movie is going to address that at any point. All right, well, let's move on to the actual football. Um, and Martin O'Neill in particular, reaction? Yeah. Um, well, Martin O'Neill, uh, you know, well, let's just hear a little bit a little bit of him. This is him talking, I think, to Tony Dunhu after the match. It, it changes the complexion. It puts the smiles on the faces. But does it perhaps mask a performance that you might have been completely happy with? Uh, we're playing away from home tonight. It's the first game. We've won away from home. I think you, even you, should be delighted that we won the game. I'm absolutely thrilled that we are won you? the game. Well done. Well um, done. Are, are you happy? Yeah, I, he went on to talk about how it's not, it wouldn't be like you, Tony, to pick out negative things, you know, which, with the sarcastic implication. Yeah, people are probably aware after uh, the the game or since that there was an issue after the game against Oman as well which I was quite struck by uh, it was a similar kind of a kind of a deal I didn't actually see that yeah, one yeah no he said he said well Tony you, you know you yourself were saying that we were well overdue a win and uh, so you should be delighted that we have one yeah. I'm paraphrasing here but it was, that was the sentiment of it yeah I mean it's true it's it's a difficult one really isn't it I mean what does it mean to be a journalist covering an international football team I mean everyone is kind of a fan of the team in a sort of an open way in a, in a sense, yeah, everyone kind of wants to do. Everyone would ideally like Ireland to win the European Championships. We all want the same thing, but it's not really your job to just cheerlead about how amazing everything was. And you know, that's not that's that's ridiculous, you know. So I mean, the performance wasn't good. It was it was bad. We ne- we needed a brilliant goal out of nothing in the last minute to win a game that I think the other teams in our group are going to win. How would Martin O'Neill have reacted to our Nigerian friend during the World Cup? I mean, that's how you do a post-match. Where do you think you got it all wrong today? <laughs> your, your big players did not perform. Is that your fault? <laughs> to the manager, those kind of questions. I mean, I, I didn't think there was anything, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it was even a challenging question, really, from Tony. I mean, it was, a, it was clear anyone who watched the game could see that it wasn't a very good performance. By Aaron. I hope that's not... What Martin O'Neill has in Managers mind. Managers in those situations seem to like to be able to say themselves, I wasn't, like, as a manager, I'm thinking, I can question, criticize. I can criticise the performance of my team, but you as the journalist or the questioner, you're not supposed to criticise it. There seems to be that sense quite a lot. Managers are comfortable enough if they're the ones that are, they want it to be on their terms, really, and maybe yeah. they, don't, they don't like the any negative t- tint to a question. I agree with you. I I don't think there's been a huge amount of negativity at all around the, uh, the Keane O'Neill no. era, but there seems to be a suggestion. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy now that it, it's, it's almost started. And as long as results go well, that won't matter. And we won't even be talking about it. But if results go badly, then, of course, it's going to be a bit yeah. of tension. I mean, I thought that, that uh, the, the team was a bit surprising. You know, I, would have, I, I, was, I thought Hudum was going to be there. Ford was in, and I, that didn't surprise me at all because O'Neill had said something after the game on Wednesday which made me think that it's, it doesn't sound like to me like he's going to pick Given. He was talking about how, uh, you know, you, can't, you definitely lose something, you know, when you're out. When you just, it's just the way it is, whether that's flexibility or something. He was talking about it in a way that, that just sounded a bit like, I don't think he would have said that if Given was going to be his number one here. And I don't really see how Given gets back into the team now, unless Ford throws one in. You know, Ford could obviously get injured. Um, but unless Given is playing um, 
he needs to go on loan. He needs to actually play uh, for somebody. And that's the only way he's going to have any chance. Otherwise, he's just going to be coming back along as a substitute. The big tactical issue that people seem to have an issue with was in midfield, this idea that they're grand. We finally have three players in there, but that they're actually playing in totally disconnected ways without any sort of fluidity and without proper support for each other. Yeah, I mean, the the use of McCarthy was, was interesting, wasn't it? Because he... McCarthy always plays as the deepest midfielder or as one of two deep-lying midfielders. And here he was being asked to be more of a number 10. You know, it was kind of... It was as though uh, O'Neill thought, well, if I use Houlihan and Keane, maybe it's I just don't have enough power. I don't have... You know, whereas McCarthy's a guy who's got a lot of energy, he's got a good shot. I mean, McCarthy did set up the first goal with a nice sort of pass. It showed what he can do. But I don't think it's... I don't think he's really used to playing like that. I mean... He used to do it a bit more when he was playing for, you know, Hamilton Academical. That's five, six years ago now. Uh, and all the football he's played for Roberto Martinez has been as this deep-lying player, which is what Glenn Whelan was doing in our team. Um, you know, I think that's probably his best position. It's certainly the one he's most familiar with. Uh, and sometimes maybe he doesn't... He's played out of position for him before. I mean, I remember Trapattoni started him against Uruguay that time. And he and again played him as an advanced player behind the striker. And the ball just kept going over his head all the time. It was a, it was a disaster for McCarthy that night. Um, Trapattoni seemed to kind of use it to say, "Well, look, I gave that guy a chance, and he barely touched the ball. So, what do you expect me to do?" Um, but the thing about Keane is interesting. I mean, the question now with Robbie Keane is: Would Robbie Keane be prepared to keep turning up to play for Ireland if he wasn't going to be the starting player? That was the question that we were all asking after Euro twenty twelve. I know he came back and scored some goals. Now he has talked. He talked about it before. I'm I'm pretty sure it was like as long as four years ago because this has been going on for ages now. You know uh, that you know if if the time comes, you know when I'm not I'm not sort of in there, then you know I'll know I'll know to walk away. You know, so at that time he seems to very much be saying, you know, I'll uh, if I'm not going to be play, then sure. If you don't want me, fine. Yeah. Um, I know when I'm not wanted but I don't know if his answer now would necessarily be the same if you were to say you know you can come and still be involved in the squad and what we're looking at is using you for 20 minutes at the end of a match um, would he do it? it's a long way to fly but at the same time I kind of get the impression he quite likes actually coming home every once in a while so I don't know I don't know if he'd necessarily if he'd go for that but what I do get the impression of with Martin O'Neill is that he is not... I do not see him putting up with a player who contributes as little off the ball as Robbie Keane is, is now doing. I just don't think it's going to... Uh, I mean, Trapattoni obviously thought, thought of Keane as, a, as an almost magical... Like the only player in our team with, with any real class in front of goal. That whatever about his short... Whatever shortcomings he had, he essentially was so talented compared to the next best option that he had to play. He just had to put up with the fact that he's not going to really run, run around... Um, I'm not sure if Martin O'Neill is going to take the same view in the in the in the medium term. We're gonna have loads more with Miguel and Dion on the Ireland game. So a couple of other non uh, one non Irish related issue is Sepp Blatter. Sepp Blatter has confirmed he is uh, running for fifth term as FIFA. A mission is never finished, says Sepp Blatter, and my mission is not finished. Uh, I've told the FIFA Congress and the Congress of the Confederations. Uh, I received not only the impression at the last Congress in Sao Paulo, but the support of the majority, a huge majority of national associations asking, please, please go on, be our president also in the future. Yes, I will be ready. I will be a candidate. Um, so there you go. Uh, he is going to keep going into his... Geez, he'll be 82. Sep the Baptist. <laughs> um, Sep, he, he doesn't has a, really make much sense. Does it? No. If you're using Sep. 
Uh, what would Sepp's documentary? Well, I mean, he's if, Joseph. If, 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 well, yeah. If Jesus Christ was 25 years or whatever, 30 years older than John the Baptist, then maybe you could draw that analogy. I, I'm not entirely sure. He'd be Moses. Yeah. The Moses certainly that. had a couple of years on John the Baptist. Methuselah. <laughs> uh, he, so anyway, he so there you go. Uh, and he, he also mentions uh, the decisions have been taken. This is the 2018 World Cup. There's this uh, issue of a war between Russia and Ukraine or a kind of ceasefire at the moment, but obviously a pretty messy situation. You know, Donetsk, this Euro 2012 host city, is this uh, scene of war now. Um, the Russia, the World Cup in 2018 is supposed to be in Russia. <laughs> right. Uh, Bladder. And people, people in uh, Europe and Germany have started mentioning this. Well, hang on a second. Why are we playing the World Cup in... Russia in 2018, is this not something that could be brought in in terms of sanctions? I mean, there's sanctions now between Russia and the EU on a whole range of things. So why not this? Blatter's saying, the decisions have been taken. We trust in the strengths of football that the 2018 and 2022 World Cups will be played. There are already some voices coming out about 2018 talking about a boycott. A boycott in sport has never had any benefit. Let us wait and see the geopolitical situation and FIFA will not intervene with politics. But for the time being, we are working with Russia. So no leadership there from Sepp Blatter. Obviously, um, you know, FIFA can't really be the ones to make, make the first move on that. Um, they gave the World Cup to Russia. And I'm sure if they were to suddenly go back on that decision, then the Russians might have a thing or two to say about, uh, about what they think about that. You know, the Russians might be like, well, hang on a second. You know, I thought we had a deal. And uh, I'm sure there's plenty of things that they could say about, you know, how the deal came to be. I mean, in the case of uh, Blatter, Blatter, <laughs> Blatter also made a movie, of course. This is in parallel between him and John. Well, he didn't make the movie himself. He, FIFA gave, I think, $16 million to it to be made. United Passions. There is a scene in that movie in which Blatter, who's played by Tim Roth, uh, meets up with Addy Dassler, the guy, the, you know, boss of Adidas in some uh, service station in Switzerland, and it's about 1976 or something, and uh, Adidas's got all this stuff in his boot, like balls and stuff like this, uh, balls and shirts and things, and he's showing Sepp Blatter his wares. But uh, Sepp is worried, he's like, oh, you know, I'm just, this 1978 Argentina, you know, they're talking about a boycott, you know, I mean, they're talking about a boycott in the Olympics in Moscow, and they're talking about a boycott now of the 78 World Cup in Argentina, you know, just because of this military dictatorship. You know, he's like, um, I'm just worried we're going to be out of business. If there's a boycott, we're going to be out of business. And uh, Adi Dassler says, Sep, the Olympics is politics. The World Cup is people. If a president tells his people that they can't compete in the World Cup, he'll be out of business. Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's truly astonishing. We must talk about it again at some point. Huh? Well, you have a movie re review slot as of today, Ken. Yes. Oh, yeah, so I think it's only natural. Kennedy's debut, movie review yeah, we'll, debut. We'll definitely talk about it. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. All right, that's, that's good manners. <laughs> a number of players have played, but they're still in the squad. I wonder, did you speak to any of them before deciding to accept the job? No, absolutely not. No, no, no. None of their business, you know what I was going to do. It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> we want to win football matches. There's nothing to tame, you know, some sort of animal, you know what I mean? And you obviously don't know Martin as well as you think you do. He makes me look like Mother Teresa. You know, he's, um, I don't know, we want to win football matches. We've had a lovely few days, the hotel's been lovely. Food's been excellent. Training ground is lovely. No potholes. Uh, we've had footballs. It's been great. Bibs, everything. It's been major progress. And we want to win football matches.
Miguel Delaney joins us in studio. Miguel, how are you? Not too bad, thanks. We're going to be talking to Dion Fanning in a second now as well. But just uh, your own thought, we're trying to decide whether to be delighted with a victory in a tricky fixture away to Georgia or to be disappointed with a fairly disjointed performance. Where do you fall on that? Uh, probably like yourselves, I don't know yet. <laughs> I, I, I think it's always the problem when, when you get a late goal like that and particularly we've got so little evidence to go on. I mean, you know, everyone always goes on about well, the ultimate team for over something like Ferguson's United, but that's because they kept doing it. With any other team, really, you still don't know which is more telling, the performance, or, or the performance making the fact that, or meaning you require the late goal, or the late goal covering the performance, does that show necessary character? So, you know, it's still hard to weigh up. Um, I'd have a fair few concerns about the performance, I think. I thought it was uh, very trap-like. It was it? Yeah, just, I mean, you, 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 kinda, you don't want to be seen as negative right now, because we're still so early into the regime. But I think the one kind of unsaid concern when O'Neill was appointed was that there might be a slight worry that he's past his absolute best. And there are parallels with how he sets up and how Trapattoni sets up. It's kind of, to a certain, a little bit of a reductive style. Now, in saying that, I don't think he's uh, completely like Trapattoni. And there were positive points from last night. Even you could argue the way they kept kind of, the variation he showed in the subs and the way they kept trying to go for the break and ultimately got one, and the use of McGeady as well. It's kind of, there's a little bit more trust and talent. But the real trap-like issue was, or the real comparison well, is... Well, I mean, again, the, the lack of... Well, first of all, the, pre-game, the big pre-game decision. I mean, against a team as bad as, bad as that, and I think they were proven to be really own quality as the game progressed, to put in Stephen Quinn ahead of Hulahan. And that was the sort of game where really Hulahan could have excelled, especially because of the fact that there was really no link between midfield and attack until kind of McGeady started moving inside a bit. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of this, and the same absence of kind of possession of trying to get on the ball. Basically, a, a little bit of a, a lack of trust in our own ability to play football. And I, I think that's the one. It, I think it's something we discussed in the show before, even last season. We were talking about someone like David Moyes against Brendan Rodgers. And basically, I think there's two kind of schools of management now. On one side, you have those who seek to try and always compensate for a lack of ability, and then those managers who actually try and trust ability and get something out of their players for it. So I suppose to a degree it's pragmatism against purism, but I'd have uh, O'Neill yeah. very much the pragmatist. Well, Dion Fanning was there to see the pragmatist team in action in Tbilisi. Dion, I don't know what the the post-match reaction was like. Obviously, we saw the TV interview with uh, Tony O'Donoghue in which Martin O'Neill was quite spiky and didn't seem too happy that, that there was any sort of um, negative connotations towards performance. What, what was he like in the press conference? What was his demeanour? Uh, well... I didn't see all of it, but the bits I when I came in, I thought he actually seemed more relaxed than he had in the uh, in you know the, the day before the, the, the pre-match press conference or in any or basically in any of his media stuff uh, when he has been quite tetchy. Um, uh, I don't think I think I think that's purely just down to the fact that he's he's not enjoying the amount of media stuff he has to do. I don't think it's it's a reflection on you know his his general mood or how he feels around the games. Um, but I think uh, it's just what, for whatever reason he feels he's doing too much of that stuff. Um, but otherwise, you know, after the game he seemed he seemed quite quite relaxed. And you know, uh, I think the thing he felt about Georgia was I think he expected Georgia to be better than they were, mm. uh, and Georgia weren't very good at all. Um, which again, when you're trying to work out, you know, how how big a win was it, you, you know, you probably have to factor that in. Although I think. Once you get three points in your opening game and it's away from home, when you've three out of your first four matches are away from home, uh, you've got to say it's it's a good result and it's it's gives you something to be encouraged by. Rather whether whether it's an encouraging performance or not, I don't know. 
but I think it's uh, it, it's something to you know to hang on to, uh, and I think the, his team selection probably reflected that he thought Georgia would would offer more, would put put Ireland under pressure. The goal came, you know, at a stage when you know they were kind of Georgia were hitting kind of a lot of sort of straight balls up, you know, through the middle up up to the, their forwards, and then you know some some again the worrying thing I would say again about the Irish is 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 the Irish defence and its ability to. Let people in, and Stephen Ward still playing left back mm. uh, is, is is obviously a, a concern. But otherwise, I think you have to be encouraged when you win in your first match. Yeah, I mean, you know, we will get onto that issue. You know, the selection things. Hulahan, as Miguel mentioned, is, is an interesting one. But um, just on on the not to want to have on too much about O'Neill's mood, but he does seem quite irritable. Um, certainly, he was in that TV interview. Um, I don't really understand why this is, though, because it's... Uh, I mean, I've seen some really negative uh, times in Irish football. Uh, there's been some really, really bad times. This is not one of them. This is, there's nothing bad happening at the moment. It's just everybody's waiting to see yeah. whether whether some kind of a, a team takes shape here. And already, Martin O'Neill and, and, to a certain extent, Roy Keane during the week are, are complaining about the negative coverage they're getting. I just don't understand what they're talking about. Well, I think they're just... I think they're kind of bored of, of having to do media stuff before before the first competitive game it's nobody's fault it's just the it's the uh, it's a byproduct of of having essentially 10 months with with no competitive matches and people asking the same questions uh because there's not much else to talk about and O'Neill then being slightly chippy um and being i think quite quite uh, sensitive to criticism um uh you know, and not even criticism, but just sensitive. Maybe, maybe just having a low boredom threshold. I don't know. Maybe he feels he just has to answer these questions. I think he does think that he does too much of the media stuff. I think he's been surprised at how much he has to do, uh, which um, is probably would would seem strange when you consider that he only has to do it uh, one week and four um, at the most. Um, but I think he, he feels he, he has to do too much and answer a lot of the same questions. Now, once the games start. Now there will be different questions, and maybe maybe he'll be happier with that. But I, I doubt it. I think he'll he'll always have that prickliness, and it's. I think a lot of the things now it's, it's people getting used to a, a contrasting style. It's like even even on the pre match press conference when people were trying to get his team from him, and he was kind of trying. I said, oh, you know, I, I don't need to discuss this at a press conference, but you know, I don't name my team. This isn't rugby union. Uh, where you name your team a week before, but it's not only rugby union where they named a week before. Giovanni Trapattoni <laughs> named his team for the first European Championship match a week before we played Croatia. A year before, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, a year, a year to a week. Um, <laughs> so we're kind of getting used to this very normal. Like everybody else does what O'Neill does, but for some, you know, we got so used to Trap coming in, you know, the day before a game and, and giving the team that there's some sort of slight kind of. Uh, settling in period now with, with O'Neill as, as he doesn't do that, and I think he finds that baffling. We've kind of got to get got to get used to that. Also, Tra- Trapattoni was so above uh, any criticism. You know, you no, know, he didn't really care what anybody said. I think pro- probably because of his his essential view of of Irish football and Irish football people that uh, you know they were kind of you know little. Uh, you know, little pixie-headed people who uh, were just there to, you know, he had to put up with them. And, uh, you know, he didn't really care. He, you know, he came in, he did his press conference, he was kind of majestic and grand and uh, and, and just 
had no interest in what anyone had said, and then he, off he went. Whereas, whereas O'Neill has reacted in, specifically in, in some instances to criticism, has has taken on people who have written things about him, and uh, is going to be a, is going to be a very different type of manager. That's an interesting point because the Orti panel after the game were very critical, and a lot of people watched that, and I'm sure a lot of people take cognizance of what those guys are saying. Martin O'Neill will certainly know what they're saying. Well, yeah. Tra- Trapattoni might have been told secondhand and never seemed to care too much, as Dion is saying. Is this going to yeah. be an undercurrent now, fr- from the start now, that there might be this tension between Martin O'Neill and the media? Well, I'm, I think, as Dion raised, it is going to be that difference. I mean, I remember when, when I was back working on the Sunday Tribune, and uh, Liam Brady used to be our columnist, who obviously knew Trapattoni well, and just before he kind of took over, he told us, basically, Trapattoni is someone who just doesn't give a monkeys about the media. Um, which is obviously kind of different from O'Neill. So that, that could be something that grows and it becomes an issue. That's because one, one of the issues with Trapattoni was, of course, that most of the debate actually centred between Brady and the other two. Um, mm. In terms of kind of the criticism right now, I, I think even even though the performance wasn't encouraging on or yesterday, you'd be reluctant, I suppose, to draw. And I think there are concerns maybe about O'Neill in the longer term, but you'd still be reluctant to kind of be um, overly negative because it could just be... As, De- as Dion says, a settling in period. The fact that it was the opening game, um, I, like, it will still like even though we've had this endless ten month prologue, it, I think it'd still be a while till we get a true sense of uh, O'Neill's Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Um, just on the subject of Hulahan, Dion, I know that you didn't think Hulahan was going to start. I was quite surprised because uh, looking at all the matches up till then, he played in every one of them. He'd started six of them. Um, now, Eamon Dunphy made a point. Uh, he 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 reacted pretty strongly against this assert and said it was cowardice and insecurity as they portrayed these <laughs> in, uh, signs, um, which I think even he rolled back on slightly. <laughs> but he did make the point that there's always uh, in football a tendency to, you know, you got the little guy, the little guy with all the class, and um, there's a tendency for, for managers not to trust those guys and to take them out to the moment of truth, which is maybe slightly undermined by the fact that Stephen Quinn is the only uh, player in the squad who's actually smaller than Wes Hulahan. And he was the man who was preferred. But at the same time, I didn't really understand why he was left out. Um, is there some kind of an idea that you can't you can't trust a player like Wes Hoolan? He's he 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 risks possession too much. He's well, why would you leave him out? He's, he, in, in all the friendlies I've seen, he's consistently been our best attacking player. I, I the only thing I think is again this comes down to the kind of Robbie Keane fault line rather than anything to do with Wes Hoolan. Once you decide that Robbie Keane is going to play. It, it it has a bearing on everything else you, you do with your team because you look at what, what Robbie did yesterday and you get a nice little flick for uh, the opening goal. But again, unless he scores a goal or two goals, his his contribution in general play is 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 pretty non-existent. Um, and he's there to score goals, and you can't because Ireland don't have anybody else who can score goals. Uh, on you know, McGeady did it last night. Uh, maybe that will change things, but because you have to kind of hope that he will get the goals. And Stephen Hunt did a column in the Sunday Independent yesterday where he said this: "Is all the players know that this is a deal with Robbie? He's not going to run, he's not going to do anything, but he's going to score if they get a chance." And that's they're kind of they've accepted that. And it's interesting that O'Neill. I think you know if, if it was Hulan and Long, you would think right that's Ireland might, might play a lot better, you know, more constructive football. Hulan would get on the ball. And I don't think O'Neill has any problem with with Hula, and I don't think he's a small, you know, small guy uh, thing. You know, he's, he's worried about that. I think I, I do think it comes down to if I if he plays Robbie up front, uh, what what are you going to do? You know, what what do you have to do to compensate for that? 
you're not sure if this if Robbie's offering enough at this stage. Can well, you? I mean, we've been this has been for a, the trade off. It's been a perennial thing, you know, for for years now. I mean, it's been, but, but he scores uh, seven against Gibraltar in the next match. Yeah. I mean, we, we, you see, we were watching TV, and often doesn't give you an idea. I mean, maybe Robbie Keane was a constant horn in the side of the Georgia defense. No, I think Robbie Keane was what he, he always is in these in these games, but just even more so at this stage. Uh, where he's not really much of a thorn at all. Now he did, he did, as I said, he did well for the opening goal, but it's just that's what Robbie kind of does now. And I think uh, O'Neill compensated for that with with the rest of the team selection. Now, the other thing I'd say about the team selection, while it looked like a trap team, I felt for half an hour it didn't play like a trap team. Was, they started from kickoff, they started passing the ball, they were looking to, to pass the ball, they misplaced some passes, but they were. They were trying to pass the ball. And I, I remember so vividly after Paris, you know, the next game, which was Armenia, the next qualifying game, and Paris had been seen as this watershed when the Irish team had come of age under trap and had played football and played France off the park and all this. And everyone was talking about, hey, this is magnificent. You know, the, he's had the time to get to know them and now we'll uh, see them go out and play more football and he trusts the players now. And we're all sitting in kind of Yerevan waiting for this. And... All that happened that night was every Shea Given launching it and launching it and launching it all night. And uh, that didn't happen last night. For, for the first half an hour, that didn't happen. Like Ireland tried to play some football. It may have been a Trapatoni's lineup, but that, that I wouldn't say there were too many similarities beyond that. Although I take Miguel's point that he is a pragmatic manager, but I think there are different levels of pragmatism. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that, yeah. And it was, I mean, if you remember the amount of Trapattoni games where literally the first move was get it back and one of the centre-halves would absolutely launch it out to the wing. I mean, that's, that's one thing that's already missing. We haven't mentioned Aidan McGeady yet properly. Um, is this a, it's a strange question to ask of somebody with so many caps, but is this a signpost for the way ahead for McGeady or just one of those rare occasions where he does what we've always waited for him to do? I think you'd hope it could be a change. I think he'll benefit from a few things. First of all, his manager at Everton. Um, I think it's going to be really positive, especially for attacking players like that. Secondly, he actually already looks like he, he looks much fitter. He looks like a bit of stone lighter, I think. And then there's his age. I mean, players do, for a number of reasons, um, when you get to kind of late 20s, 26, 27, 28, they do come into their prime. That, that could be possible as well. He's kind of developed that maturity now to go with his talent. And I think there's always been a sense, particularly with Ireland, of, with McGeady, of he was always a little bit straightjacketed by the system, particularly under Trap, because Trap basically saw his wingers as kind of auxiliary fullbacks who, are, who just operated on tram lines. Whereas, again, that, that's another difference from last night. There is a, a bit more nuance allowed to how the, uh, how the wingers can move. And we know about O'Neill's relationship with McGee. He made reference after the game to that. He said, uh, you know, just, just small things. It doesn't sound yeah. like Martin O'Neill takes him aside and gives him these half an hour rallying mm. speeches, but it does seem like he drops in these comments, even the ones he drops into the media from time to time, hinting at, almost joking about what Aidan McGee should be able to do. And McGee does seem to be taking that on board. He said that that's the same at Celtic, that this is what O'Neill kind of has. We all, this is what we're expecting. This is, this is the 5% difference that O'Neill should mm. be able to make, yeah, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. yeah and I, I'd be usually encouraged, but I think it could be a big campaign by, by for McGeady. I mean, and it'd be nice to see him you know, take on that kind of dominating, decisive role. Dion, just your own thoughts on McGeady? Well, yeah, no, I'd, I'd uh, agree with that. I think you know, we're seeing... Uh, we may be seeing some, you know, something based on his relationship, his sort of long-term relationship with O'Neill. But I think, as Miguel said, that this is also he's come back looking very fit. He's he started well for Everton. He's uh, 
he's got that opportunity. So it's it's a more general thing as well, which is more encouraging. And I think what O'Neill does for McGeady, he does for a lot of the players. I think that's uh, McGeady was one who, who who kind of stood out last night. But I think there's a number of them who would say that he, you know, this is what, as, as you said, oh, this is what you kind of expect from O'Neill. That sense of a, of a manager who, who motivates players and and gets something out of them. And I think you know if he can do that for McGeady, he can be a very important player and a, a very creative player. And if you have O'Neill and McGeady becoming the two kind of critical people in, you know, in this campaign, you'll have a lot of very tetchy press conferences. <laughs> McGeady's a little tetchy as well. I think he was tetchy with Ken once a few years yeah. back. But Dion, just before I let you go, I don't know if you've had a chance since arriving back to have a look at John the Baptist. And if you have, <laughs> have we learned any more about the great man? I think we've learned a, a, a lot about the great man. I think that it's uh, if you want to if you want to learn about about John Delaney, uh, you 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 um, you can look at look at that video and uh, and some of the other articles. I think it was a, a great weekend for Irish football. Ireland won, and John Delaney found love. All right, Dion. Listen, we we'll leave it there. Thanks a million for that. It's uh, Dion Fanning of the Sunday Independent. Um, Miguel, your own thoughts before we move away finally from. John Delaney and his uh, media saturation at the weekend. Well, so the, the big thing that struck me when I started to uh, first of all read the piece, the big, the big lengthy interview in Life Magazine was, what's the um, what's the audience for this? Who who is who is actually thinking? Yes, there's a great thirst out there to know about John Delaney, a football administrator, social life. Like, where does that come from? And secondly, if this is a bit of a PR exercise, who is reading that piece and thinking, yes, this changes my opinion? This complete whitewash, you know, and then these kind of, you know, nice little folky stories about how as a child he, he gave, you know, a, a, a set of shoes to a, to a traveller. You know, this kind of thing. I mean, it's just... <laughs> if, I'd say if you're already a John Delaney fan, yeah. maybe that reinforced why you're a John Delaney I, I fan. If you're not such a big fan of John Delaney... Do you understand what I'm saying? This isn't Delaney's fault, even though I think I would question the kind of media strategy that allows a piece like this. But then all these little snippets thrown in, like... As we discussed on my stag party last year, like, that was what, Barry. Egan, yeah, why yeah, the, why the, is that the there? What, what's, what's the relevance? <laughs> what's, the, what's the relevance in general? That was when he met Michael Noonan. In oh the yeah, church. yeah. yeah. Uh, he met Michael Noonan in the church at dawn or something, was it? No, I think he told the story to Barry Egan at dawn. Um, as, yeah. as the sun came up, okay. and, yeah. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't meet Michael, Michael Noonan, Noonan at dawn in the church. Yeah, that would after, have been a, after a stag party, yeah, I was like, when did he come out from Brazil? That would have been. That would have been a story. Actually, then the final anecdote. I wanted to. Uh, that was that, that was the only thing. That this is where he met Eric Cantona. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I wasn't um, quite sure what was. It was, it was a strange one. Mm. He met Eric Cantona with his with his friends. They uh, the three lovely girls walked yeah. in. Lovely girls. It was, it was, and a queue formed, and his friend was at the back of the queue. The queue, something yeah. like that. So I don't know who was in the queue, but or what was going on. But of more relevance to the Republic of Ireland's campaign is the form of Scotland. Yeah, we could take heart with the fact that Germany didn't look totally unbeatable. But what did you make more realistically of Scotland, given our? Uh, it worried me a little, <laughs> to be honest. They're quite good, it turns yeah, out. Yeah, and I even I even talking to a few of the Scottish guys at the World Cup. Some of the, they, there's actually a real sense of hope about their team for the first time in a decade. Now, part of that could be. Also, because they're in the same situation as us, finally into a group where there's much more, of a, much more chance of qualifying. But I think we're actually quite unlucky in how it's panned out because, unlike so many other groups in this qualification series, we've got a situation where it's basically three, three sides of a similar level, all looking for two places behind Germany. And uh, so, which means while it would probably be no great, um, you could you could maybe never not blame any of them or the one team that misses out too much because it is that tight. Mm. 
it, it also means that, I mean, it, yeah, there is a bit of threat here. I mean, because Scotland almost like, seemed to be, be like we were maybe halfway through the kind of first trap ca- campaign. We could kind of see it coming together a bit. And there, there was definitely the kernel of a, a good core there. Really impressed by their intensity. Um, and also the, the bravery they showed in going for Germany. Because uh, as absolutely brilliant as Germany are, they're one of these kind of strange teams where, you know, one of the great international sides possibly ever, yet there's such an obvious flaw there. I mean, that defence is so weak. And sh- and Scotland showed a real um, a real courage and thrust in, in going for it and then kind of refusing to be cowed by reputation. I thought it was, even though they didn't get a result, it, it would worry me more than even Lewandowski's goals against, against Gibraltar. Well, let's talk about Germany's weakness then because we've got fast players. I mean, not if Robbie Keane stays in the team, granted. But if we have Shane Long up there, Aidan McGeady, James McLean to come back see in. see what Anya... The- Goal scorer Scotland tweeted about it. I didn't see his tweet. No, uh, he. Oh my god! I scored against Neuer. You know, scream, scream face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't even do that in FIFA. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it was a great finish. I mean, everything about it because he had quite a lot to do. There you was know? a replay which showed it from behind him, uh, and he's approaching Neuer, and you're thinking, Oof, Neuer looks sort of intimidating there. This is Emmanuel Neuer had the zone look, to be in. Na- Na- Emmanuel Neuer is the man who did knee a striker in the head while clearing a ball from a one-on-one situation in the World Cup. Accident- does, accidentally, of course. But <laughs> yeah. It was a good finish. Um, yeah, and I mean, Naismith was looking amazing. But you know, Naismith, is he as good as Aidan McGeady? Is he as good as James McCarthy? Let's remember, we've got the key ingredient for success, Scottish football players. <laughs> we, we've got a few well, of them ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, I think, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know if Scotland are necessarily going to play as well. I hope they aren't going to play as well as that against Ireland, because if they do, then they might beat us. It, yeah. it would be classic old Ireland and old Scotland to put in performance like that against Germany and then, I suppose, to lose against... I saw, I saw one of the Scottish journalists tweet that last night, actually, looking forward to our defeat against Ireland after this brave performance. <laughs> right, yeah. And so, so there's probably not much of a difference between Ireland and Scotland. Yeah, that, or, or Poland. So anything could happen with those teams. England are playing tonight. Some people might be listening to this as the uh, after the game. So um, this is their opportunity for us to sound stupid. But there seems to be a lot of... We've talked about a small bit of negativity around the O'Neill Keane yeah. thing, mainly out of boredom on both sides. But there seems to be genuine tension now in England. Martin O'Neill, or, uh, Roy Hodgson, I should say, not happy with the mm. two goals on target stat last week. And uh, just doesn't seem an especially happy figure going into this game. What do you think? How do you yeah. think England are set up? Um, I'd be slightly concerned. I mean, ultimately, they've got enough good players in a, in a campaign like this to get through. But in the longer term, and to make an impact in a tournament, I think they've got the wrong manager in charge. Um, I think, I mean, we often thought of watching England over the last few years, they were like the worst of Trapattoni, if on a slightly higher level, because they're players. Hodgson only knows how to set up one way. He's, um, he's an extremely pragmatic manager in that kind of negative sense. Um, and it's interesting way it's turned. I mean, there was... After the World Cup, a lot of the English media were very, very forgiving um, on Hodgson. And now that has just completely flipped. What did you think of the fact that um, they printed this thing last week when Hodgson was asked by the... Hodgson was asked by the Daily Journalist... Um, you know this question, and he, and he mm. retorted that it was bollocks. You know, that was yeah. the two shots on target. Was yeah, it, was it? Yeah, I think that was that. But the interesting thing was surely that they printed that. Absolutely, and I've like I've been in press comments like that before, where some a manager makes some sort of statement, and he mightn't mean in that sense. Or be, and there's always kind of there's an agreement: like, should we print that or should we not? And you know, the re are it's just the, the pros and cons are basically printed. Yeah. And I think yeah, it is significant that. Uh, they, they went with it. Yeah, because it, it shows... Is that, that not just standard reporting of what a manager said? No, I mean, record? often if a manager... Like, say, they might say, 
Roy, they might say Roy Hodgson rubbished suggestions mm. that, you know, they wouldn't necessarily say Roy Hodgson said this was, yeah. you know, because I, I, I doubt it's the first time Hodgson has, has said something Absolutely. like that. I, I think but it is it, the first time that, it's, that he's found, you know, they said, all oh, right, well, um, he did say it, therefore it goes in. Whereas, you know, I think in, you know, a manager they were more better disposed towards, they might be, they might be inclined to say, well, you know, he's, um, he obviously didn't mean that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that we're, we are seeing a bit of the true Hodgson as well. I mean, there's this kind of perception of this kind of avuncular, almost, you know, professor figure, like as if he's above a lot of kind of football's kind of grimmer realities. But I don't think he is. I think he's renowned, you know, on training pitches and in dressing rooms as a pretty spiky character and well, well, well capable of taking care of himself as well. Yeah, and he, he's actually started to talk a lot about himself yeah. again in a, in a sort of analytical way. Popularity doesn't mean much to me. You know, I've never mm. been interested in being popular. Uh, am I seeing the nasty side of the job? No, there is no nasty side to the, to being the England manager. <laughs> One of oh, the most oh. notoriously <laughs> horrible jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, he's he's going on about how I'm uh, I'm not a cam person. Never been a cam person. As any player would has worked with me would attest, there are always moments of extreme anger and viciousness in my coaching sessions. <laughs> <laughs> Hodgson is Roy Hodgson an angry person? Has he got a nasty streak? This is Hodgson speaking. Yeah. By the way, you wouldn't have to go too far to prove it. The players who come out of the woodwork in no time. I've never sought popularity. Um, it's unusual for me to get angry with my players. But be careful of stereotyping me too much as a calm, collected person. <laughs> so I think this is not... You know, he's got a contract, obviously, till after the mm. European Championships, but it seems already as though this is, is beginning to snowball oh, a little yeah, bit. We'll yeah, see if the vicious, crazy Roy Hodgson's England can do it tonight. And they're up against a decent Switzerland side. With yeah. like kind of exciting young team as well, So uh, who are almost what you could argue what England should be with that kind of Liverpool, Southampton core and players like kind of Sturridge. Um, but it'll be... Interesting game, which hopefully I won't, I won't sound foolish if they've gone and won 3 0 in Basel. Miguel, great to talk to you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, lads. I knew the place. Clough, that he calls me a rabbit, didn't know them. He said to me, What can you do that the boss hasn't done? You, the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. There's no way you can win it better. Why it's not? Lo- no, 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 no. But that's the only hope I've got. We're doing, lo- we're doing lots of four matches. Then. But that, well, I can only lose three. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Clough, that he calls me Ravi. Good luck. Now that might that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that. I want to be like me. The other personality again we should be discussing in relation to England is their new captain, Wayne Rooney. Yeah. Who is captain of Manchester United, captain of England, prime of his career according to the prime age that is usually given for footballers. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily seem like, uh, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem, on paper this is a very good career, but it just doesn't feel like it's great at the moment. Yeah, well, look, I mean, on paper it's, it's incredible. He's, he's probably going to be the record goal scorer of Manchester United pretty soon. He's going to be quite possibly the record goal scorer for England as well. I mean, England are playing San Marino in this uh, in 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 this qualifying series. So if he manages to make it onto the pitch for that, he's got a good chance of padding out those stats a good bit. Um, but yeah, he you know. It's it's a strange one. Barney Roney actually wrote a great piece about this a couple of days ago in The Guardian. I just want to read one line from it, Alan. Mm-hmm. I thought this bizarre line somehow managed to capture quite a lot. Um, 
he says he's essentially saying he says this is the Waza paradox. Here's a footballer who has been elevated to the pinnacle of what he could reasonably hope to achieve, captain of club and country, at precisely the stage in his career when he is no longer able to fulfil with genuine distinction either function. In mechanical terms. It seems fairly clear what's happened. Rooney has, in the past two years, lost the vital twitch of explosives that underpinned so much of his effectiveness. Uh, and he says that he's lost his dribbling, lost the... Above all, he has lost that sense of absolute joyful certainty in his own powers, reduced instead at times to whirling about fretfully between the lines like a dying crab, eyes fogged with grit, gargling brine and scurf, pincers snapping at empty air. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful image. It is. But you can kind of see what he's talking about. Yeah. In a way that you, sh- you possibly... Do you think would Wayne Rooney see what Bernie Rooney was talking about there? I don't know if he necessarily... Players don't really like to confront their weaknesses, I don't think. Well, certainly, as we've learned... On, the, on not, their own not terms. When, yeah, on their own terms, maybe okay. If Wayne Rooney... If that image came to Wayne Rooney's own head... Yeah, he might be able to unleash it in an interview with Barney Roney. Mm. But were Barney Roney to put this to him, I don't know how happy he would be about that. Yeah, I would like to see the reaction though. But you know, there's always a, maybe he's just in one of those uh, those little dips in form that even even he sometimes has. Maybe we're not talking about something more permanent here. But I do think uh, Barney Roney has identified something there that. Uh, a lot of people start to worry about Wayne Rooney. Our first show of the week is ready for you. That's been hanging around the internet for a few hours now and it features all our hurting final reaction with Malachy Clerken and Morris O'Brien. Andy Lee, who was in Belfast to see the impact that Carl Frampton's world title win has had in the city and the debut of Ken Early's movie review slot, which is worth a listen. Do check out our new website, secondcaptains.com. It's probably only right to finish out this particular Irish Times Second Captains football podcast with a small tribute to John the Baptist. Ken, explain this one for us. Standing six foot two inches of great personal charm and articulacy, razor sharp intelligence, whatever about the vivacity of a song and dance man, John Delaney has quite the opposite effect. Uh, to Ed Sullivan, the American TV host, who was, uh, it was said that he was a man who could brighten a room simply by leaving it. In fact, he, John Delaney now, seems to bring oxygen and laughter into a room. In my house last Christmas, he sang The Rooster's Song. And a few years before that, he did a rousing rendition of the same song, accompanied by accompanied on a tin whistle by Paddy Maloney of the Chieftains at the Mexican Ambassador's residence on Raglan Road. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Ken. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thanks Thank very you. much for listening. Thank and we'll leave you with the Roosters. He turned off the lean game. He had this rooster. He turned off a lean game My wife said, honey It sure ain't funny We're losing money He's awfully gay But then a chicken Came into our yard his guard He's laying hands now Like he never used to Ever since that chicken Came into our yard Ever since that rooster What is that? It's the second time it's gone off They never go home They never go home They never go home Those, those, those boys <laughs>